Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Natalie Freeman. Today, we are so thrilled to welcome a group of incredible poets to read to you from their new collection, XLA Poets. And after that, they'll be joining each other in conversation to talk more about their work. Before I introduce them, I wanted to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing with a limited capacity. We are open from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Masks and social distancing are required, and we ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit. We are also offering online ordering through our beautifully newly designed website, which you can find at www.skylightbooks.com. I'm going to be introducing each poet individually before they read you a little something, and we are going to start with Rachel. Rachel Kahn is a devotional poet and ceremonialist. Her books include You Sparkle Inside, a prayer on behalf of the broken heart, and the mixed genre 10 for everything. Her poetry and fiction appear in journals including Hebria, Eclipse, Permafrost, Co-Review, Southwester, GW Review, Quiddity, and the Lalitamba. You can find her work on the anthologies of Poets Haggadah, Word Warriors from Seal Press, His Rib from Penmanship Press, and Knocking at the Door from Birch Bench Press. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for having us, Natalie. So I was wondering, have you ever heard of murmuration? Listen, it's breathtaking, but you should Google it later though, later. It's basically bird flocking quantified to the awesome power. It's starlings communing through flying and swirling like one transcended entity. They move in a fluid choreographic flux on the constant edge of next shift, next shift, next shift, and each of these shifts is called a critical transition, a murmuration of thousands of starlings tuned into each other's movement through the phenomenon of scale-free correlation, following neighboring velocities, each bird affecting the next seven birds nearest to them, and then the next seven, and then the next seven, look, Even Charles Darwin said survival of the fittest was a misapprehension of his findings. Even he believed in the holistic, was awed by the elaborate and elegant interdependence of nature. From abiogenesis all the way to present day, from subatomic particles to the entire biosphere, its emergence that encourages evolution, kill or be killed is a lie of the mind, an outdated paradigm. I'm talking directly to the tiny little you who lives inside of you, reminding you of all the truth you once knew you knew implicitly, returning you to your previous innocence, restoring your clarity, because kindness is your true nature, and I promise anything beyond that has been inculcated. Not just that. As a matter of fact, kindness is actually a radical act in this hard scrabble and roughshod crapshoot sneak attack of a life spilling with inner demons and double dealings. All of this neglect and emotional starvation based on pattern repetition so ancient it's tread raw and bloody crop circles upon your throbbing heart. 
This injurious journey is filled with hair-triggered, human-ticking trauma bombs who only want love in a way they can understand it, waiting for someone to say, show me where it hurts, and then give them a chance to answer. Do not withhold the kindness that is longing to flow through you. In this very moment, you could choose to say yes. You could remember gentleness, even toward you, even though you like it rough, even though life's made you tough. You could choose to stop all the naysaying. Who are you to discourage anyone, yourself very much included? You could choose to be grace. You could choose the alchemy that awaits your bravery. Spin your entire existence into endless golden thread. In this very moment, you could choose to say yes. You could put your hand on your chest, on your heart, on your throat, on your cheek. Come on, do it. You could let that little voice within you speak. And this time, you could listen. Give yourself the gift of presence. In this very moment, you could choose to say yes. Let this kindness expand wider to the people on each side of you, and then the seven people nearest to you, and then the next seven, and then the next, and let it grow in your inclusion, past human, past all blooming, past every last murmuration of starlings, until your soul is a whole swarm of moonbeams, filling this universe with your unique, super sweet, and deeply needed illumination. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much, Rachel. Next up, we have Armine. Born in Beirut, Lebanon, Armine Ignadosian's family sought political asylum in California. She is the author of the chapbook, United States of Love and Other Poems, and the full-length collection, All That Wasted Fruit. Her poetry has recently been included in Whale Road Review, Southern Florida Poetry Journal, the American Journal of Poetry, and she lives in Long Beach, California. Thank you, Natalie. This is titled, Four Olives. In Greek mythology, Olives were a gift to humankind by the goddess Athena. They rained down from the trees during Santa Ana winds. My mother, every weekend, bed sheets ready in the trunk of her car, drove to my high school, laid the sheets out under the trees, shook them, or simply gathered the fallen tossing them by the handful into plastic grocery bags, large jars filled with water, salt, vinegar, thyme, garlic. Mother craved olives every day during her pregnancy. I was born with an olive-shaped birthmark on my left calf. Leave them brining for a week or two, the longer, the sweeter. Warm the pita over the burner, slice tomato, fresh mint from the side garden, dirt under nails, pits spit into palms, spoons, napkins, wrinkled black Greek ones, Turkish green, Kalamata, mission, a clutch of green onions next to the mint, a small dish for the pits. A pit in the stomach grows a tree, a tree is a home, rain fed, dirt fed, sun fed, a woman feeds her family with what she gathers in her arms. In America in the 1980s, olives were only found on pizza. Yet my family ate them after every meal, crushed them into paste, made whole meals out of them when meat was scarce. Olives keep well. In the trunk of my mother's car, you will always find bottled water, a jar of olives, running shoes. 
Thank you, Armine. Next up, we have Shonda, author of five books, including Black Indian. Shonda Buchanan is a daughter of mixed bloods, tri-racial and tri-ethnic African-American, American Indian and European descendant families who migrated from North Carolina and Virginia in the mid 17 to 1800s to Michigan. Black Indian, her memoir, which won the Indie New Generation Book Award for Memoir, was chosen by PBS NewsHour as top 20 books about institutional racism. She lives and writes in Los Angeles. Greetings, uh, everyone. Natalie, can you hear me? We can hear you, Shonda. Fantastic, fantastic. Thank you so very much to Skylight for having us. I love Skylight, uh, one of my favorite bookstores in Los Angeles. And thank you, Linda, for this fantastic anthology. I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful to be a part of it. I'm going to read um, two poems. And the first poem I will read is from a collection of poetry uh, that I wrote called Who's Afraid of Black Indians? And this poem is called Berkeley Plantation for the slaves or the enslaved and the American Indians of Berkeley Plantation in Charles City, Virginia, where the first quote unquote Thanksgiving was held in 1619. It is my fault when we enter the master's house unaccompanied. My friend and I, we are wrists in the sleeves of yesteryear. Berkeley Plantation on the James River, sassafras summer. It is the end of a hot day in Virginia. The empty house, its silences beckon me. Hallway is wide, decent rooms, cardboard smell, stately portraits above mantles, white faces, chipped porcelain and china, things black and Indian hands have cleaned. My friend pauses, I sigh. We are the stories hundreds of years ago that white interpreters tell, yet my picture is not in this house. Y'all can't be here, a voice calls. And then she comes dressed in petticoat and apron, an interpreter. She is stern, seems upset that we trace our ancestors' footsteps. She has forgotten her training, thinks we might take something I can tell. No, it's private property now, she says. Property, property, that word again. Will I ever know the lace of it? A slave's life, a denied drink of water, womb vacuumed, arms empty of a child. Shouldn't admission be free for us? I turned to go, but instead turned back asking, if my ancestors worked this land, shouldn't I be able to walk it? Cautious, suddenly smaller, eyes alert, aware, she slowly shakes her head. What would I steal? Take back the betrayal of humanity, the stories interpreters tell, the long, long ache of time. Thank you. So that's my first poem. And my second poem is my, this is my, I cannot wait to be around people poem. I wrote this in the middle of COVID 2020 and just longing for all of my angels in Los Angeles to be around me. So this poem is called, We Are All Angels. Every horn honking, every fence, every line for a club, restaurant, bar, taco joint, Korean spa, nail shop, Kogi truck, Grand Central Market, midnight movie, skylight books, reading, line, I'll stand in it. Every child's frisbee, wild sand, kick in my lap, yell in Santa Monica Beach, combing sleep, I'll suffer it. Every beyond Baroque board meeting, every Beverly Hills Wilshire attitude, or every South Central, I got you cuz embrace. 
every Lamert Park Sunday jazz lace crunch, every morning clamor of South Pasadena, parrots and peacocks left behind, every DTLA gentrification layered on top of my gritty haunted streets, every secret bridge, every killer workout stairs, every menace Botox muscle monster, every parking lot chump who takes my space, every exhaust filled freeway I wish away, every 405, 10, 110 accident I play on as I inch past, every strip mall, every child star, every digital nomad, every unsheltered human, every millionaire in Trader Joe's, every red carpet neck craning. I love you, Denzel, moment. I will take it. Give me your Jamaican roti, your Ethiopian dorowat, your little Tokyo sushi. Give me Greek theater open sky kisses. Give me drag queen love, LA, with your twilight Mulholland Drive window steaming love song, your San Gabriel Valley wind struck up by Shimash and Kwangba and Queen Khalif ghosts and gangbangers we loved anyway, now seeding in fault lines under our feet in this place we call home. I miss your Olvela Pumanderas, your Boyle Heights Chiapas desert skin your crooked sunset boulevard smile, your Hollywood cat tip fingers, your county check arms around me. LA, I miss your desperation, your sweat, your glossy lips on my forehead, sky bar, skyline, eyes, Friday, Juma, Silmar, sweat lodge, sage smoke in my hair. I miss your cowboy dust your Pio Pico Black Mexican governor past, your migration future. I miss you, LA. I long for you in my sleep. Hope you come back to me. I'm still single in this beautiful, mad, Iwana quiet, saddle blanket, earth trimmering night. You, my love, my favorite hiking trail, my morning wheatgrass shot, my prayer rug, my Yemenya ocean, my Mahuthasan bear dance, my Esawan bookstore solitude, my writer's haven. I will not run. I am a Sade song playing long into a community college night. If you set me free, I will not run. I will be here. Will you wake up? And I'm actually no longer single, but that line is still in the poem, so I might have to change it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Shonda. Next up, we have Allison. Allison Adele Hedgecoke grew up in North Carolina, Texas, Canada, and the Great Plains region. She's of Huron, Metis, French-Canadian, Portuguese, English, Irish, Scott, and mixed Southeastern Native heritage. She's the author of the poetry chapbook, Year of the Rat, the full-length poetry collections, Dog Road Woman, Off-Season City Pipe, Blood Run, Streaming, an illustrated special edition, Burn, and the memoir, Rock, Willow, Deer. This is Coliseum. Raiders games, we paid the gang kids to keep eyes on and hands off our wheels. Just blocks from Memorial Coliseum where we could not afford to park. For crazy games, people called, plonk it, plonk it, when Raiders fans rallied the veteran player to take the field again and otherwise. We watched the fans sometimes more than the game, as fights broke out over any slight, carrying afternoon heat into sultry kickback, catching nuts, dogs, nachos, your little satin sleeve Raiders jackets from some clearance or yard sale, 
shine in tungsten fashion. Your face is wide with smiles, surprise, still with me, like knowing Plunkett's parents, like your grandma, blind, knowing he had blood from somewhere south, was just enough to soar every inch he made below the stands, every centimeter. Car was always washed, Bernardo, when we rounded back to catch her, we'd tip what concessions left us, take leave, hoped we'd saved enough to do it all again. And this is Oakwood Departed. It's a great book. Everyone should go out and get this book. These two are from the, the pages. Oakwood Departed. At the end, we wondered if some of the Tongva buried next door in a traditional cemetery long unmarked by fire were laughing, chuckling side of this. If you too, laughing. Though one stayed home contemplating her love made death of you, the fountain near the prep sprayed two of your exes in their faces. Three attended. All stood and wailed a bit, maybe the only time they were somewhere in unison like swans somehow, along the graveside, made us laugh a bit at the absurdity as scattering cars scurried into lean lines, cars from rolls to lucky starts all appeared. Rest assured, we were moving a pace more old Santa Susanna stage road nearby than freeway. Out of them tumbled such a disparate bunch, one might wonder who could bring them all together unless they knew you. We felt your face hardened, rock, like you were for us in life, hard, like you were to anyone who might hurt us. Through our handfuls, dirt, sang, departed. Thank you, Allison. Next up, we have Chelsea. Chelsea Rector is a poet living and working in Los Angeles, California. Her work has appeared in the Los Angeles Press and in publication with Rebel Hands Press. Her manifesto, On Being Mean, will be published by RHP in spring 2021. For poems, you can visit crimpingiron.tumblr.com. She's the co-founder of Psycho Street Theater Company, an experimental text and performance project with artist Jeremy Kennedy. The company released episodes one through three of the radio play, Be Glitched, in 2020. Thank you so much, Natalie, for having all of us ex-LA poetas on the show today. Um, I'm a 100% fan of Skylight, long live Skylight. Want to give a shout out to Frida, my girl Frida. You know who you are. Um, and also uh, just an update on Be Glitched, our radio play. It is now um, complete. The first, first season is complete and available on our YouTube and Bandcamp. So don't hesitate to reach out to me um, on social media or wherever if you want to access that. I'm going to read a piece that's in XLA Poets, the anthology in question today. And this is called Untitled. List number of dead of the heart, the heart cutthroat. Engird in numbers, as I say it is like round. A little nest, a psychic sex, expression alone is dangerous. The door is a father who said things, is a mother who said things, is a metaphor for unabated joy. The heart, the heart, honestly. At the end of the day, everything that begins as comedy ends as comedy. The next piece I'll read is not in the anthology, but it's got Los Angeles all up in it. And it is called I left my white cup in your car, a sonnet for my friend. The only time I have ever fainted is with you. One going upstairs in Glendale, little blue pearl in the trees, the tiny home I collapsed in. And now you have the balcony off of which I have barfed 
as the sun does on desert days. We live in the heat wave's eye. Our hearts always aflame, all asphalt and angels and shook up people. Scraped knee blood packed. Time is either alive or our prey in the middle of an intersection. We became more than friends when you fell down the stairs into me. We became more than sisters the first time I fainted. We became more than brothers too. I fainted again. You caught my skull like a ball. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chelsea. And next up we have Teresa. Poet Laureate Editor-in-Chief Emerita of Altadena, California from 2018 to 2020, Teresa Maichuk is the author of three full-length collections of poetry, Red Thread, Keeper of the Winds, and Invisible Light. She was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and immigrated to the U.S. under political asylum with her mother and brother shortly after the Vietnam War, while her father remained in a Viet Cong re-education prison camp for nine years. Since the age of two, Teresa grew up in the Tongva village of Hahamonga, Pasadena, California, where she still lives and loves. Hi, everyone. I'm glad I could join you all. Even briefly, I'm in my classroom. So I have some students that are in the classroom right now. Um, one of them is working with his RSP teacher. And I have a full class um, on my other computer right here. Um, they're working on something independently right now. And I told them I, that I'll read the poem to them after. So because I can't have, I realize I can't have two mics on at the same time because we'll get that feedback. Okay, so I'll try my best. I'm wearing a mask because there are students in the classroom. My poem is called One Um on a Dragon. Mother shows me a lacquered painting on a plaque of one um, bodhisattva of compassion, riding a dragon. It is misty around the bodhisattva and the dragon. The picture looks so real, almost like a photo. A sacred vase in one hand and a willow branch in the other to bless devotees with the divine nectar of life. Mother says that she and other boat refugees saw one um as we were fleeing Vietnam after the war in a freight boat with 2,450 refugees. When she looked up towards heaven in the clouds, she saw the Bodhisattva in her white flowing robe riding a dragon. Mother says that the goddess was there to guide and save us from the strong waves of the South China Sea. I should know better than to believe her, though she swears it's true. I ask again, and she nods, says, really, I saw one um in the clouds as we were escaping. I should know better than to believe her, but a part of me wants to believe in a bodhisattva in compassion riding on a mythical creature, to believe that somehow something more than just our mere human selves wanted us to live. Thank you. So glad I could join you all. Thank you so much, Teresa. And finally, we have Linda. Linda Ravenswood is a poet and performance artist born right here in Los Feliz, California. Skylight Books was her local bookstore as a child when it was called Chatterton's. She grew up right here on Vermont Avenue and went to school at Los Feliz Elementary right around the corner. In 2018, with help from her friends at the Los Angeles Review of Books and the USC Publishing Symposium, she founded the Los Angeles Press aimed at publishing the best new and established artists and writers in contemporary literature, performance, and hybrid work. A collection of poetry, Rock Waves, Slow Drags, will be published 2021 by Eyewear London. A two-volume poetry collection, The Stand Poems, Indictments, and The Stand Poems, Amendments, is forthcoming from Pedestrian Press in 2021. 
And just this week, the full collection, A Poem is a House, was offered publication by Hatchlings Press in 2022. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> thank you so much, Natalie. And thank you forever to Skylight Books. Um, Skylight Books, who brought me so many oh, amazing plays and poems and children's books through the years and fantastic events. Skylight Books, who brought me Teresa 20 years ago uh, when I saw her little volume, Bye Bye Grandma, uh, there by the, the cash register. And I was buying something and then just saw it there and read it. It was, you know, it could fit in your hand and it was read like a little, I don't know, like a tiny cookbook or something. It was gorgeous. And I read through it and thought, who is this genius, this great genius? And I looked for Teresa for years and couldn't find her. And then finally, maybe 12 years ago, I found Teresa. And, and now here we are today reading together and uh, making poetry together and talking about our grandparents and Los Angeles and what it means to be a, a woman writer here in this strange Pueblo, strange and beautiful Pueblo. So thank you all so much for um, this uh, very generous, expansive space. I'm going to read a poem um, called Venice, 1982. Of course, it's about my grandmother who lived at 2030 North Vermont from 1961 until she passed away. Um, and that's just hop, skip, and a jump from skylight. So from core to core. Um, Venice, 1982. My grandmother had a key to an apartment in Venice, California in the 1980s. In her 70s, she would go under cool breezes to meet a guy that she knew from the swap meet. A 1940s girl still on active duty in the 80s. All her victory curls and dippity-doo, the clean ocean liners of her arms. Her teeth had fallen out in Portland, Oregon. Grandmother's grandmother gave her a dollar coin for the dentist off Marguerite, one by one, year by year, the long streetcar ride to the pliers. 1919. 1922, so many extractions. When her mother's sister would come in after a date, she'd nudge my grandmother awake. Dot, here's a sweetie. And my grandmother would wake lightly to nest a chocolate in her mouth and go back to sleep. All night long in Portland, Oregon, she swelled that blossom to the end. A hundred years ago, my grandmother lost her hearing in Portland, Oregon, a cold winter. If she was driving and her window was down, you'd have to speak up because her left ear was the good one. And in the car, all she heard was the wind. A hundred years ago, my grandmother's feet moved in sandals up and down Vermont, all along her yellow poplars. She pressed down her accelerator and she would drive and drive. How to construct an image of a person long gone, not so long, snowdrift in relation to planet. For whom do we build these images? Some answers resound. It is for us, ourselves, on the wind, the wind who is our brother, in the cold black night. The stillness of white sheets, these are for whom the poem belongs to the sweat and the breath. A poem belongs to the struggle. Portland, Oregon, 1923. My grandmother's grandmother builds a coat for her with the formality of 19th century hands the dignity of a plumber's granddaughter in the early 1920s, Portland, Oregon. The coat held military Baroque people who came across waters. Green Bay, Wisconsin, 
memory of farmland and white flowers in sepia, a dog on a high wooden porch, a dog in a field under a house, faces of children, of boys in hats around old farm equipment, some tractor in sunlight. All these things were built into this coat and more. Even at 10 years old, my grandmother recognized the pattern, inhabited it. But what part of it did she remember or forget as she walked from school? Was it her lungs, her teeth? Was it raining? Was it spring? Was it her ear? She took a corner of the coat and folded it in her hands, a leak being prepared for wax paper, preparing to go under. She placed it through the eye of the chain link, a holy host. She pushed a breath in the vaulted mouth. Some yellow goats received the weft back to their family, their brains. They chewed its scutch corners of grandmother's grandmother's coat in an ominous Mobius strip of lamb's wool. When my grandmother came in, her grand saw the coat hanging in shreds. Dot, your coat, my grandmother told her, Grandma, the goats were hungry and I had to feed them. 95 years later, I read about a goat's head, not immobilized, but severed and hanging in trees. It was then I knew poetry is genetic. Thanks, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. Thank you all so much for sharing that with us, for sharing all of your beautiful words. And I'm going to hand it over to Linda now to lead you in a conversation so you can tell us some more about this great new collection. Yay. Thank you so much. Well, um, <laughs> uh, so we have a book. It's called XLA Poets, and it's put together by these amazing writers that we just met. And a couple of us um, who aren't in our midst today, uh, the Poet Laureate of Los Angeles, Lynn Thompson, who had a conflict today, um, Viva Padilla, um, founder and editor of Dryland, um, Louis Vet Resto, um, amazing, amazing writers who aren't with us today. And then of course, these wonderful folks and uh, the publisher, Hinchas Press and Yago Kura. Um, and uh, over the last year or so, we. We put together um, this anthology, uh, this homage to the city we love, hate, can't live without, right? So um, yeah, uh, some of the people in the book, like Teresa, I've known, you know, like I said, for 20 years. Um, Chelsea, I, I, I met Chelsea when she was doing performance art on a, on a, when we saw someone doing performance art on a hill in, in LA overlooking downtown, and I saw her there on this dust and dirt road with flowers in her hair. And um, she's a great performance artist and hybrid text artist here in town. I mean, I could go on and on about these writers. Um, all I can think of right now is Armine's mother with the with a folded blanket in the car, right? To always catch the mulberries. And I think about the people who built the city who always had that foresight, right? They always had running shoes or a blanket for mulberries or if someone needed a blanket or, um, and I, I worry about us. I worry about, about us without, without those, those craftspeople to show us the way anymore. I mean, do we all carry a blanket in our car? Do we all have extra shoes or candles? Armide raises her hand. Yes. <laughs> so um, I wanna I wanna ask you, Armide, do you really carry a blanket in the car? 
I carry everything in my car, uh, medicine, band-aids, first aid, food, always ready for an emergency because of, you know, obvious reasons, my past, my history. Some of us share similar histories of having to pack up and run away from some threat. So I think that intergenerational trauma stays with you, even if it is your grandmother or great-grandmother who had to put ash on her face to look unattractive to, you know, the Ottomans coming to rape them and surviving because of that, you know, it's a survival thing. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Right. I mean, why, why do you keep the blanket in your car? For instance, why do I have a furniture blanket folded in the back of my car? Well, I mean, what for, you know, I'm not moving anybody's stuff. What am I going to cover? I, what, why do I have an extra pair of shoes in my car? I mean, my grandmother, of course, went through the depression and I was raised by Holocaust survivors right here in Los Angeles. But uh, what am I afraid? What am I so scared of? What am I, you know, battening down the hatches for and, and uh, you know, carrying around an emergency kit in my car? What is, what's that about, Armine? I love what Chelsea, what Chelsea just wrote in the chat that um, we also live in an in environment, a topological environment, topographical, that's dangerous. Earthquakes, fires. I mean, California is known for being the most amazing, like it could be its own country because of the GDP, but also we're always dealing with some kind of natural disaster here. So... I think we're all survivors if we've lived in LA. We're all kind of <laughs> right. Wildfires, global yeah. pandemic, uh, earthquakes. Right, right. Um, police violence. Yeah. There are parts so, of Los Angeles, like um, I live in Koreatown, and this is a part of LA that's like um, actually like there are certain blocks that are more densely populated than parts of New York City and Brooklyn. Um, and yet we're a suburb. Um, and so I live living in K-Town uh, for the last few years was like, it was major culture shock. I was an East Sider my whole life. My mother's family is from San Gabriel. My grandparents were both born in Boyle Heights, you know, a small Italian community that was still there. and. Um, Granny Pearl lived in Mount Washington till she died, you know, and all this kind of good stuff. But um, yes, I was an East Sider and then moving into K-Town and experiencing like Los Angeles, the city life, culture shock, like I couldn't have imagined. I mean, and I literally moved like three miles down the, down the highway, like amazing. So, I mean, we truly do have it all including the threat of natural disasters at any moment. <laughs> um, a huge, as Armini said, a huge uh, GDP. We are the, what, sixth largest global economy. Go California, whatever that means. But yeah, I think like, you know, it was wild out here when it was getting developed and it's wild out here now. And there's a prepper spirit in all of us. <laughs> I think it comes with the territory and the longer you've been here the more you're just like yep got another pair of shoes in the trunk now too <laughs> you know so I just wanted to add that in you know to even moving through Los Angeles proper is just such a remarkably um um it's it's a remarkably diverse uh topographically, geographically, culturally, we all know this. Um, it's, it's, a, I mean, we, we take it all in. We really do take it all in here. Mm. So. so maybe the question, Chelsea, is instead, um, if you, we, if you don't have your blanket and your extra shoes and your pemmican, whatever, why not? Why don't you? Um, yeah. Um, I'd love to hear from Teresa on on this score. Um, Teresa, do you carry anything in particular in in your car or 
uh, in yeah, your... I took um, survival training actually <laughs> with a um, a Tongva uh, person here that um, is part. He founded this organization called um, Natives for Nature, and he did um, survival. Um, and my partner and I took these classes, and so in my car I have. Um, survival backpacks so I can make fire, I can um ready for I have food, I have um tents, I have blankets for all weathers, I have um cooking utensils. I if there was a zombie apocalypse, I would want to be in my car. Because my car literally has everything. And it has um, it has these water filters too, so I could filter water from the mountains. Yeah. I, <laughs> so I, and so I think part of that is um, due to my family history of um, needing to survive. Because like that poem that I read about the boat, that's based on a true story. And uh, we were in the boat for three and a half months in the South China Sea and the engine stopped working. And, you know, luckily um, the UN did an investigation and then um, made resettlement arrangements for all of us um, because they were going to just tow our boat out to the open sea. We would have all died. Um, so a lot of it, you know, coming here was survival, you know, watching my mom, watching my grandma, just trying to survive. And um, so I think that's part of the instinct and how I, I feel like I, um, it's important to do that. And I also actually just recently signed up for a wilderness first aid class so that I can, <laughs> Not only survive, but help others survive. That's so gorgeous, Teresa. I'm wondering if you, there's a way to bookend this incredible story you just shared with um, the, maybe you could talk a little bit about gardening and, and your grandmother's tree. Oh, okay. Thank you, my grandmother. Um, so I actually have a copy of this little book yeah. this is how I met Linda um so this was before I even wrote poetry um I made this little zine and um it was dedicated to my grandmother when she passed away and I had it on consignment as skylight books and Linda happened upon it and somehow she got in touch with me and this was about 20 years ago and so my grandmother, she did a lot of work in the garden. She planted um, an orange tree from a seed that right now is huge and it gives oranges every year. And even though my grandmother's not here, her oranges are here and continues to nurture us and take care of us. And I see hummingbirds by the orange tree and I think that's part of the, the nurturing, the tending to the land, the importance of recognizing, you know, first of all, that we are on Tongva land and paying our respects as guests and, and listening to the guidance of the elders here of how to care for the land. And what I've been doing for many years now is um, tending to the land through restoration and native plants. Um, and um, I propagate native plants and I do restoration. And um, I think it's important for us to build a relationship with the land. And I think um, that's for me, has been huge because especially being displaced from my original homelands, um, not having a sense of um, feeling like where is home and, um, and connecting with the plants here and taking care of the plants and they're feeling they're my family, my relatives and having this reciprocal relationship because plants take care of us too. 
And I think that was when I started to really feel um, connected to the land in a sense of home and responsibility as a caretaker of the land on which I'm living. Oh, thank you so much for uh, grounding us always um, in, in that incredible way that you do, Teresa. Thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering, Rachel, can you jump into this conversation? Um, I always I say that you're my rabbi, but I mean, can, can you talk about a little bit about what it means to be a Kohenet? Sure. I just wanted to share that I see Shonda raising her hand. So I think she might have oh. wanted to say something about that. And then I can talk after. How does that oh, sound? Oh, thank you. Thank you. I didn't see that. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you so much. I was going to just continue on. But I think, you know, like Teresa, my heritage, my history in this country is migration history. You know, um, having been a child of, uh, you know, enslaved peoples, and that's middle past migration, and then also, uh, you know, the people on that side of the family. So, like, intrinsically, in the back of my mind, I have packed my car and my life, and I'm able to, I'm able to pack my home within five hours with a sense of something might happen. <laughs> so let's just be prepared. So I do have a sleeping bag and tent and I have a porta potty. I've got hammers and, you know, scissors and like things to build stuff in my car. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think just along those lines, Teresa, I really appreciate what you said. Um, and then Allison, I see what you have that survival backpack. I do think it is a sense of, you know, that, um, for me at least you know that of color uh heritage and inheritance in this country and then of course in the modern terms you know living in los angeles you do have to be prepared for anything because we are a country on fault line or, or rather a state live you know we're living on fault lines <laughs> you know like i said in my poem uh we are all angels you know the fault lines beneath our feet and so i think that one of the beautiful things about being an, an angelino i'm a transplant but being an angelino is you live with the beauty, but you also live with a sense of impending possible danger. So, um, yeah, and I wouldn't live any place else in the world. <laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Kat, do you want me to, thank you, Shonda. Do you want me to speak about what you were speaking to, Linda? I'm happy to do so. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've always been so interested in um, how you uh, ceremonialize um, your poetry, how you uh, use ritual every day, um, and uh, how you use that to ground yourself, you know, here in LA and wherever you go. And I know that your one of your appellations is that you are a part of the Kohanim, right? You're a Kohenet. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Kohenet is a group of, it's the name of the institution. Well, I don't even like to, I'm not a fan of institutions. It's the Institute, Kohenet Hebrew Priestess Institute, and it's also the type of clergy that I am. So Kohenot, which is the plural of Kohenet, is earth-based, radical, feminist, post-gender, ritual creators to fill in the spots where ritual is needed, badly needed in our world, um, from a place of inclusivity and a place of um, really connecting to the plants and the animals and all humans all humans, it feels really extra important to say that right now with what's going on in the Middle East, that um, really standing for love and humanity and peace for all people um, and sharing other people's experience who have spoken. Um, I never have, I, I struggle with feeling like I have a right to live anywhere. Like every 
no matter where you are in what we call the United States, every step you take is on stolen land, you know? And so it's, it's an uncomfortable issue that is also very um, wrapped up in my own personal intergenerational trauma because I don't feel like if I think about it from that perspective, I don't really feel like I have a right to live anywhere on earth. So it leaves me with, what should I do? Should I move to Mars? Well, I don't really mean the Mars, the Martians own that, I guess, you know? So really I'm trying to feel like how to show up in a good, gracious way and live in a humble way, in a gentle way on the land. And so what I do in my um, ordained position as a Kohana is First of all, there's all kinds of kohanot doing all kinds of things. There's weaver women, there's um, all kinds of artisans and artists and different kinds of magic makers. And some of us are ritual creators, which is um, something I move through. I mean, I'm a poet first for much longer than that. And um, so, yeah, I, I use my position in that world to create ritual um, because ritual brings healing. It doesn't matter what we believe, like we need ritual and you can feel it right now after being in the pandemic of like how much we need to go to music concerts, for example. And like that, that being one of the collective rituals, like a bunch of kids at a metal show is as much of a ritual as any Catholic high, holy ritual. And so um, at this point, a lot of it is creating ritual on Zoom. Like yesterday, I did um, a new moon circle. And in the Jewish tradition, new moon circles, it's called Rosh Chodesh, which literally translates to head of the month, the start of the month. We measure, we're on a lunar calendar as opposed to a solar calendar, which many people are, many traditions. And there's a lot of interesting things I encourage people to learn about what a solar calendar does how it varies the sacred feminine and how it takes us out of rotation with nature. It's pretty interesting. A lot of lineages work with the lunar calendar, not just Judaism. And so, um, like a Rosh Chodesh circle is traditionally a women's circle, which is a beautiful thing. Like they've been traditionally left out of a lot of ritual, but I feel like at this point, like, even having these sort of gender demarcations, anything that's exclusive, I'm much more interested in being like post-gender, like anyone on the gender spectrum, anyone on the belief spectrum, anyone on the ethnic spectrum, religious spectrum, identity spectrum, come, let's be together. So like my new moon circle, and you're all invited, it happens every new moon. Next one is the month of Tammuz coming up. Um, it's me and an Orthodox woman who's a Chabad Orthodox woman who's a wild mystic and then a super progressive Israeli American artist who could like let all religion just go forget it all and she does video and the Orthodox Chabadnik is a world-class cellist so we have videos a beautiful videographic art of the moon and then this world-class cello being played and then me doing poetry and like banging a drum and and talking about that and doing some somatic experiencing work to drop people into their bodies and feel safe and feel relieved during this challenging time so yeah like stuff like that really trying to like stay what i'll use this term very broadly like kosher meaning like and i mean it kosher like really in the sense of like staying in a way that's good, pure, righteous, in the sense of inclusive, kind, encompassing, a big wide tent for everybody to be inside of. Mm -hmm. And poetry is my first ritual, you know? Actually, if I go all the way back, dance, I was almost completely deaf between the ages of 18 months, and, months old and five years old. I had a series of really severe ear infections that left me with almost complete hearing loss. And it was very easily fixed with surgery, but they didn't know. It kind of missed the radar because I had tested with normal hearing as a baby. So actually, and then when it was discovered, it was fixed with the surgery. But um, dance is my first language, but dance is poetry, isn't it? <laughs> isn't rhythm poetry, right? And the first sound we hear is actually 
in our mother's womb is the rushing of her blood, not the heartbeat, which is also sounding here, but actually the, the pulse of blood. And so that rhythm, that whoosh, that fluid rhythm. And like, I think I'm always just trying to reinterpret that and like find ourselves in a womb-like space, like reminding people in Zoom ritual, it looks like we're in little boxes, but we're really in a circle together. It looks like little squares, but it's really, there's no beginning, there's no ending. Just like trying to leave everything about patriarchy and white supremacy in the dust and really not leaders and followers, just collective, everyone being equal. Thank you. Thank you for asking me <laughs> And we can find out more about um, all that you do at realizeparadise.com, right? That is perfectly correct, Linda. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I want. I want everyone to realize paradise, not in the sense of get it, wake up, but like actually something realized, like brought to fruition. And just to have a moment of sweet relief from the trauma that we all, we've all experienced, you know, just to find some comfort and a feeling of safety inside a world that isn't actually safe for a lot of us. But to know mm -hmm. that our core, like that little pilot light inside us is actually safe and is beyond this earthly plane. Mm. Thank you so much, Rachel, for um, your wisdom today and always. Um, it's funny, I also met you on the top of a grassy hill overlooking yes. downtown Los Angeles. You did. Yeah, it, it was so all beautiful. These, yeah, all these proofs that if you go outside in Los Angeles, you can meet your people, you can meet your tribe, and you can make a book like XLA Poets, available at Skylight Books. <laughs> yes, I have goosebumps right now from the top of my head to my toes when you said that. It's so, it was, when I met you, it was, it was friend love at first sight. We call it in Judaism, Bashert, the soulmate feeling of connection and love, and it really was, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I second that. It's Bashert. <laughs> All right. So it looks like we have time for one more question um, on this fabulous Skylit uh, podcast. Um, and I wonder if we could uh, invite Shonda back into the conversation. Shonda, who is traveling at light speeds, um, skylight speeds uh, in upstate New York right now. And I was wondering if we could talk with Shonda. Um, who is, as, as we all know, a great poet, a professor, um, a publisher. She's the editor-in-chief um, over at Harriet Tubman Press. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe we can hear from Shonda about um, publishing through this pandemic. Have you been publishing anything here in Los Angeles, Shonda? So for the press, Harriet Tubman Press, we haven't published anything. Uh, for myself personally, I've been doing a lot of online work and I was a finalist for um, the Mississippi Review Poetry Contest. So that's published this summer. But in terms of publishing uh, for my press, we haven't published uh, anything from Harriet Tubman Press. Everything is on a bit of a standstill and we're getting, we're regrouping right now. Right, um, right. Yeah, that's the short answer. <laughs> Can you tell us um, where what you're doing there in New York? Yeah, so uh, I, so I was basically working in New York. I, I decided that uh, COVID afforded me the sense of mobility where I could take my writing and my teaching uh, to Brooklyn to be with my daughter. So um, yeah, I wanted to you know, hang out with my daughter and my grandson and just spend some some time with them and, and my son-in-law. So I was very grateful to do that. And then uh, I was able to get back to work on one of my projects, which is turning my memoir, Black Indian, into a screenplay. Uh, and then I'm also in talks with a, a, a friend of mine to turn parts of Black Indian into a dance performance for Lula Washington Dance Studio. Um, because this, the sense of what it means to be African-American and American Indian in Indian country in America, there, there's such an um, intersection in our stories and our experiences uh, separately in you know, uh, the sense of dislocation and relocation. 
And then at the same time, when we come together as family, as allies, as um, you know, people, uh, uh, tribes or nations who saved or who helped um, with rebellions or who stole Africans from plantations because they saw how miserable they were. I mean, there were so many moments of in intersection uh, and then shared culture and uh, I almost created a word, culturality. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so, so those are the things that I've kind of been working on. It's like how to, how to advance the discussion of intersectionality and, and um, triraciality, by and triraciality with regards to, um, you know, resistance and, and survival and persistence, uh, you know, through, through different mediums and not just uh, as the memoir and then the book of poetry, but then also the, the, the movie and then the dance performance. So we'll see how that goes. Mm. Well, thank you so much for, um, for calling in today from the wilds of Upper New York. Yes. Um, and Thanks. we can't wait for you to, to come back home to Los Angeles to keep making up new words and, and new yep. visions. Um, so thank you so much, Shonda and uh, Rachel and Allison and Teresa. Uh, Chelsea, are you coming to us from uh, the Music Center right now in the middle of downtown? <laughs> no, I'm not at the Dorothy Chandler today, but by God, I'll be back there soon. <laughs> and uh, you can find me there most likely, but I'm coming at you from the El Salvadorian corridor here, baby. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks to um, all the XLA poets, to Yago Kura, our publisher, and Hinchas Press. You can find XLA poets at www.hinchaspress.com, or uh, you can find it in all 75 Los Angeles public libraries. Um, and you can also find it at Skylight Books, our hearth and home. So thanks a million to you, Natalie. Thank you so much, Skylit and Skylight Books. Thank you so much, Linda. And again, I wanted to thank Rachel, Teresa, Armine, Shonda, Allison, Chelsea, and Viva and Lynn, who weren't with us today, but were definitely with us in spirit. Thank you all so much for joining us and for reading for us today. As Linda mentioned, you can order your very own copy of the XLA Poets Collection at www.skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you in store soon. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.